You may be seated. Let's pray uh, in response to that. Lord Jesus, again, we thank you so much for this morning. And we are here today because of your gospel, because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And we are grateful uh, for that. We are thankful for that. And we live in light of the cross today. I pray that the cross would not only have saved us, but would continue to mature us and continue to unite us. I pray that this body of believers, this group of people who are here today, that we would be knit together in Jesus Christ so that we could accomplish all that you have for us, not only to bring you glory in worship, but to bring you glory in how we live outside of here, proclaiming you to the nations. Thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is clear. I thank you that your word speaks to my condition, to my need, to what you want from me and creates a pathway and a solution for me. So I pray that you'd open our minds, open our hearts in these next few minutes as we, as we look at your word. And I pray that you'd be honored in how we respond to it. We love you in Jesus name. Amen. Well, very good. Well, we are going to continue on in 1 Corinthians. I will let you know right now we will not finish uh, the section that we were going to. I know that's shocking, uh, but I don't know if I can do uh, in 25 minutes what I had probably 45, 50 minutes. Who am I kidding? Like 60 minutes of material. So uh, the beauty is, Lord willing, well, I'll just say this. Lord willing, I'll be back next week. And... uh, and if you're back next week, we're going to take, you know, pick up where we left off. So this is good. That's great about going through God's word this way. Um, we're going to shift gears a little bit and get into the main points and the main arguments of the book of 1 Corinthians. And I love the way God works. Uh, I love the way that God can take something that seems to our minds, our puny minds, that seems... Uh, maybe foolish or seems messy and make it into something that's beautiful. Just think about the way God uh, created our bodies, right? It somehow our bodies work together in this complex system of nerves and muscles and sinews and everything together. And even when you're resting, your body continues to digest things. It continues uh, uh, to, to operate. It continues to, to function even when you're not uh, uh, doing anything for that. I was thinking about that as I crawled out of bed into the shower this morning and couldn't remember how I got from the bed to the shower. Have you ever, you know, I'm like somehow something happened and my body continued to function. And actually a few years ago, uh, you know, I had my gallbladder taken out. I'm like, God, really a gallbladder? That's an ugly piece of machinery. And, and, uh, and that's why I took it out. But, but somehow he, he takes these, these things that alone would be really ugly and messy and makes something beautiful uh, out of it. And then the other, the other day, Aaron and I, my wife and I, we were talking about, and we were laughing because we had one of those discussions in our home where we didn't see eye to eye, and yet we resolved that and talked it through, and we laughed afterward. Maybe not so much funny, haha, but funny, hey, let's laugh about that. And, and we said, isn't it, f- how in the world, because we see things so differently, God in his cosmic irony, has man and woman come together and get married? I mean, how different is that? Uh, it, it's, it seems kind of foolish if you would start over and you go, you're going to take the opposite ends of the extremes and put them together in unity in a marriage? Uh, and somehow in that, in that diversity, in that complexity, there's beauty there. 
Well, this morning, actually, for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about foolishness. How, how things that God does, things that God has us do, seem kind of foolish. And if you kind of took an objective step back, you would start to think, how in the world do these things work? This morning and into next week, we're going to talk about unity in the church. Unity in this thing called the body, in, in, in God's church. How do we have unity in the, mix of, in the midst of such complexity, in the midst of such difference? How does that work? And if I present that to the world, it would seem foolish. Next week, we're going to talk about how the message of the gospel, God intended the message of the gospel to be foolish. Two weeks from now, we're going to talk about how the messenger, you as a messenger of the gospel, are foolish. And how in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, the method of bringing the gospel seems very foolish. And yet those foolish things in God's economy are wise. They're very wise. Infinitely, eternally wise. And so this morning we're going to talk about the foolishness of Christ-centered unity. And why it's so wise that we believe it. Uh, Because that's the way God intended. He intended things that seem foolish, but in and of themselves are wise. Turn with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And start at verse 10. And we're going to zip through all the way possibly to the end of verse 10. Uh, And maybe more. Okay, But let's start reading together. Start at verse 10 of chapter 1. It says this, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. There's a reason why he said that. It's because of verse 11 to 16. He says this, For... Because it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are actual quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. And others say, I follow Apollos. And still others say, I follow Cephas. And there's some that even say, I I actually just follow Christ. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I actually thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Actually, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. And what he's going to do in verse 17 is transition us to a discussion on the gospel and how the gospel is a demonstration of God's power, not on man's ability to be eloquent of speech. But we'll get there. And so the first is this, is is Paul gives his suggested appeal to unity. The suggested appeal to unity. Now it's important that you realize this. Paul, we've talked about it the last few weeks. Paul was not too happy about what was going on in the Corinthian church. I would say this. I'm not even sure this is a biblical term, but I think you'll understand when I say Paul was a little ticked. Okay? I don't think I have to define that for you. He was a little perturbed by what was going on in the church. But what he does is he doesn't 
invent that. He doesn't, he doesn't demonstrate that in what he is saying and how he is writing. And you understand that Paul is writing this letter by verbally saying it and dictating it to somebody else, to Sosthenes. And so what he doesn't want is he doesn't want that frustration and maybe that perturbment uh, to come out in his writing. And so what he says is a very important word in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you. I appeal to you. I'm not demanding of you. I'm not, I'm not angry and saying, you better change, church. He comes to them and he uses the word parakaleo, which is one of my favorite words. And it's a word of urging. It's a word of, of coming alongside and, and, and helping somebody along. He's asking strongly that they consider these things. He is appealing. Now, Paul absolutely could have dropped the hammer, raised the thunder, and, and, and called them out to do this because he was a, an apostle, but he didn't do that. He appealed to them. I believe he did that because when we, when we say things just in anger, when we say things because we're ticked or we're perturbed, then, then all we're trying to do is vent that to somebody and we're not looking for a long-term solution. Paul is looking for a long-term solution. So he speaks to them in two ways. He appeals to them in two different ways. One is he appeals to them in a fatherly way, a fatherly way. And that's when he is uh, calling the name, uh, he's calling them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's appealing to them by the name of Jesus. And when he does that, what he is saying is, it is not my authority, but all of who Jesus is, all of his character, all of his authority, I'm calling you to change based on him and Jesus Christ's lordship. You see, when we become a follower of Jesus Christ, there's a transfer of authority. Before we know Jesus Christ, we think that we have authority in our own life. We can do whatever we want. And it's kind of pseudo-authority because we're under the control of the, the prince of the power of this air. But, but now when we follow Jesus Christ, we're under a new authority. We're under Jesus Christ's directives. And so Paul is saying, you've already committed to that, now live up to that. So I'm appealing to you as an apostle, but I'm appealing to you by the name of Jesus Christ. It's in a fatherly, authoritative way. But the second way he appeals is as a brother. As a brother. There's a brotherly appeal. And you notice there he says, I appeal to you, my brothers. (laughs) Uh, Paul never viewed the church in a corporate sense. He never viewed it as strictly a hierarchical uh, structure. He always viewed the church as his family. And, and there was a family issue going on. And what he is doing is appealing to them as a family member, as a concerned brother, as, as part of the family, as, as somebody who led them to the Lord. And now they're part of his family. He's saying, as your brother, I'm just, I'm urging you, I'm coming alongside you. And I'm appealing to you as a brother that these things need to change. It's, beautiful when we start thinking about the church like a family. It's how we, it's, it's not that we're trying to run things like a corporation. We run things like a family. Now, how do we know that? How do we know things are, I love that this morning didn't run smoothly. Did you notice that? Okay. Not, not according to plan. Okay. At least not my plan. And the beauty of that is we remember that everything we do, we try to be excellent at. True. Everything we do, we do to our best ability. And let me just say, by the way, that we have people here that spend hours working on the lighting, okay? They they had to spend hours because they said, we're trying to make you look good. And it took them, 
I mean, they're working, okay? It's like they're still in process with that, of the lighting. But, and we have people who do sound. And you understand that when people work on sound and lighting, it's like an offensive lineman in football. You only notice them when they get a, a flag called on them, a penalty on them, right? And, and so we only notice those people when things go wrong. We don't ever notice saying, man, the lighting was great today. The sound was crisp today. And what's beautiful about that is we strive for excellence because we want to glorify God in our effort. And the beautiful thing is that God is glorified even when it doesn't go according to plan. True? Because we're a family. How many of your family outings and your family vacations have not gone according to plan? Okay. Oh, right. And sometimes we go, oh man, I got a story for that. And that we expect the church to be perfect. Right? Things don't always go according to plan, but it's great because we're part of a family. So this is how Paul is appealing to the church. The second thing is the nature of his appeal. Here's what he's actually asking the church to do and to consider. The first thing is this, is he's asking them to speak the same thing. Uh, my version, uh, the English Standard Version says that you agree. The literal word means that they speak or say the same words and that there would be no divisions among them, no schismatas, no schisms, no fractures among them. And so he's asking that they say the same thing. Now that's an interesting uh, principle that you say the same thing. And I think we have to understand what is he asking for and what is he not asking for? When, when he's saying that we need to, as a church, say the same thing, that does not mean that we're handed the script, <laughs> that here are the top 100 Christianese words that you need to uh, uh, memorize so that when you leave here and people say, how's it going in your life? Hold on. Great. <laughs> you know, I love the church and Jesus. Uh, it, he's not appealing for that, okay? That, that is fake and artificial. And actually he builds a case in chapter 12 that we are different you think differently. You speak differently. We have different passions. Let alone, look, in my house, sometimes we can't agree on things. Here, can we, we can't even agree on which sports team to root for. We can't even agree if country music is actually from the Lord or the devil. Okay, we, there's some things that we can't agree on. We, some of us know the truth. Some of you don't, Okay. But there, there's disagreements, right? And, and yet, somehow, even in my house, we can disagree on those things and still agree and say the same thing and, and not divide over those things. And the second, so, so, and we'll talk about what that looks like. And the second appeal. Oh, and do you know the reason why there was disagreements? Do you know why there's ever quarreling going on? There was disagreements in this church so much that they started arguing. That's usually what happens, right? You disagree, you start arguing. You start infighting. There starts to be factions that way. Remember this. Anytime you are arguing, anytime there is fighting in your home, in your job, in this church, do you know why there's arguing and fighting among us? Do you know why? James 4 tells us why. James 4.1. I love when the Bible says things like this. What causes quarrels? Oh, Thank you. Answer it for me. And what causes fights among you? James 4, 1. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight. And you quarrel, you do not ask, 
you do not have because you do not ask. In other words, do you know why there's quarrels and divisions? Do you know why this church was at odds? It's because they were selfish. Because they wanted things and they couldn't get them. And when you, ha- you want things and you can't get them, you start to fight and you start to quarrel. So that was going on in the church. They were quarreling. And anytime you argue, now I think men can do this a little differently. Sometimes men will, will have at it, will argue, and then we'll go, eh, yeah, you want to go get a hot dog? You know, and it's like, let's go golf. And we're fine. We're, but sometimes those quarreling, it gets personal and it gets heated and it causes division. And the word schismata here is it was fractured. And the next thing that Paul said is not only speak the same thing, but he wants them to be united. He wants them to be united. The word united is a word, a surgical term. A term that was used when a doctor would take a fractured bone and and fuse it together and mend that bone. Where there was something that was rent, something that was broken, and the doctor would set it and fuse it together and bring it back to wholeness or completeness. And so what Paul is saying is, he's saying, I want you to be united. And I want you to start to be united in the way that you think. And then the way that you then judge things out of that. In your thinking and your judgment. In the way you view things and the calls that you make out of that. I want you to think the same thing. Now, that's what he wants from the church. And there's reasons because there's reasons why he's saying that. And, and that is in verse 17. We're not going to get to it this morning. But in verse 17, it's because of our mission. It's because of the mission to proclaim the gospel. When the church is divided. Listen, when our house is divided, the world sees that and goes, I don't want a part of that. <laughs> That's a crazy place. I, I mean, and not crazy because we're passionate about God, but crazy because we're fighting amongst ourselves. And then we say, yeah, but Jesus is great. And they go, maybe he is, but he hasn't affected you at all. Well, a house divided cannot be effective for the gospel. And a house divided is a miserable, joyless place to be. And, and, and how is it then, how is it that we are united in thought so that we think the same thing, have the same intent and same purpose? It's, it's what I tell people in our Welcome to Grace class, by the way. It's saying that, that we think the same things among the major lines of doctrine, and there's some major things that we have to agree upon. And what I tell new people here, if you are new to this church in the last few months or years, this is what you agree upon. That we have the same view of the gospel. That we can agree on the fact that the gospel is what saves us. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That we are sinful people compared to God's holiness. And that God had to reach down and save us. And the way he did that is he sent his son Jesus Christ to die in our place. So that when he died he forgave our sin and gave us his righteousness. That's a salvation that comes from God alone. I couldn't conjure that up. I couldn't do anything. He had to save me. But that we agree on the gospel. That we agree on the sovereignty of God. That God is in control of all things. That God is the one who is actively in control. That his will is always accomplished. That we trust the sovereignty of God. That we don't make excuses for God when things happen. Things happen that are bad. We're like, well, God must not have done that. Maybe God was sleeping. No, God doesn't sleep. He knows. He's in control. The third thing is this. This is a major one, right? Is that we believe that the Bible 
is not only true, but that it is sufficient for everything. That is authoritative in our life. In other words, what we yield our life to is what scripture says. That if scripture says it, we do it. And we take the whole Bible, not parts of it. Not the parts we don't like. And that we yield our life to what the Bible says. If you do that, welcome. The fourth thing is that we say, not only do we believe what unites us is our view of the gospel, the sovereignty of God, the Bible, but that we want to be pure. God wants a pure church. That means we talk about sin, and when we're caught in sin, we confess our sins so that we could be forgiven of our sin. That we call each other to holiness. That we want to make sure that if somebody is caught in a trespass and sin, we try to restore that person in their sin. The fifth thing is that, is that we submit ourselves under leadership. Leadership of the body. We understand that God places leaders over us for our good. So that we can follow their lead according to Hebrews thirteen seven. That we can imitate their faith. But, that, but they are a protection over us. And the last thing is that we have, a, we have a common mission. That all of us have a mission from God to make disciples. All of us. And those are the things that if we agree on those things, that we may disagree with nuances in those. True? You and I may banter back and forth within those about certain theological points or certain doctrinal points or even philosophical points in there. And I've said this countless times. I don't mind you disagreeing with me if you don't mind being wrong. Okay? I, we, can, we can have the discussion, and, and as long as we understand, agree on that, we're good. No, we can agree to disagree on certain things. But it's the main things that drive us. What Paul is saying is this. Church at Corinth, agree on the main things. Agree on the gospel. Agree on God's word. Agree on the sovereignty of God. Agree on these things, and, and you could have, have total agreement, but you're dividing because you're, you're looking at people that you're following, and you're following mere men instead of God. You think you're doing a good job, but you're following simple men. And that leads us to the second point, which we will just touch on, and then we will land this plane is there was a spirit of present disunity in the church. There were factions in this church. It was clear. The, this church had gone down the road of following men instead of following Christ. There's a reason why we do, we do the, the uh, communion service we just did, the bread and cup that we just did, is because we want to remember Jesus Christ. And very easily, we are, we are in a culture that follows People, and sometimes we elevate people over Jesus Christ. When we do that and go down that road, what 1 Corinthians 3 would say, and we'll talk about this next week, is that we demonstrate that we are immature, we demonstrate that we are jealous, and we demonstrate that we are arrogant or boastful. See, what, what Paul was saying is he said, I want you to be united as a church because it's imperative to your mission. And, and just skip down, and we'll close with this. We'll close with this. One and a half pages down out of six. I'm not going to have you wait. This is good. Oh, I will have you wait till next week. I'm not going to have you wait in here. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What we'll talk about next week is this is that the gospel is not only 
uh, the gospel is the solution to disunity. Whenever we're disunified here, the gospel is the solution because the gospel gives us our directive. Paul said, there's so many little things that I could give up. Baptism's super important, he's going to say, but not more important than the gospel. And so baptism isn't the issue. If baptism gets elevated, then, then we're off of our mission. And so we need to keep the mission clear. This foolish call to tell people that they're sinful and the way they can be forgiven of their sin is that a man, Jesus, lived a life that you could never live and died a death on a cross 2,000 years ago to save you of that sin. That's crazy talk, but that's the power and the wisdom of God. So not only is our mission the thing that solves our problem of disunity, but the gospel itself produces maturity in the body. The gospel means that I am growing in maturity. The gospel should mean as I grow, I should become more humble. If I am growing in the gospel and maturing in my faith, it doesn't mean I have more information in my noggin. It means I am humble and I begin to love more. I begin to love other people more. And the third thing is it means that I'm willing to confess my sin and seek forgiveness from others when I've wronged them. And I'm willing to forgive people when they've wronged me. It is essential. The gospel is not just the clear mission that we, that we focus on, but the gospel is what continues to change us every day. See, just like in a marriage, what makes a, what makes a marriage go from a house of craziness and a house out of, of disorder to a house of peace and unity? It's when both parties in a family are willing to be humble, to love each other truly, and confess their sin and admit when they're sinful. And it's the same here. And the call here is, are we growing in maturity? Are we growing in maturity of the gospel? And I don't mean just knowledge. And if we're not growing in maturity, do you know what the, the end result will be? If we, are, if we are immature, then little things become big things. Then we begin to say, I'm of this guy. I like this shepherding group leader. I like this teacher. I like it the way it used to be. I like it the way that it's going. And we focus on those things instead of remembering Jesus Christ. And when we get into that, when we start dividing and following mere men, we get off our mission. And we stop being effective. And this place is in disarray instead of a place of unity. We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to start in verse 11. And we're going to talk about, we're going to unpack what it means that I follow Apollos and I follow Paul and Cephas and Jesus. And or Christ. And then we'll move from there. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am so glad to have less time to preach today because of the fact that we could remember you in communion that we could remember you in taking the bread and the cup. So thankful that you not only saved us, but you continue to grow us and change us. And I pray that your spirit would move among us, that we would be changed, that we would grow, that we'd become more mature, that we would trust you more, that we'd be humbled before you and each other and love each other fervently. Thank you that there is the hope of forgiveness. I thank you that no matter what we have done, you will forgive us because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Thank you for a great morning together as a family. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.